Hello, and welcome to the first episode of For the People, By the People. I am your host, Sergio Hernandez, and today I am joined by Jason. So, And today we will be talking about Build Back Better, uh, where it is right now, how, what the progress of Build Back Better has been, uh, and looking towards the future as to where that bill is going, as well as ima imagining and looking at the national divorce scenario, which was recently proposed by Marjorie Taylor Greene before she was banned by Twitter, uh, not for inciting Civil War 2.0, but for COVID misinformation. So that's always fun. Um, but that's pretty much what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, Jason, what are your initial thoughts on sort of the current state of Build Back Better, uh, where it is right now? I mean, not to be all doom and gloom, but um, it doesn't look good. Uh, it seems like Mansion is just going to hold it back. And I mean, basically, like, if we want to be completely honest, like, besides the fact that Mansion's not voting for it, like, as we saw from that, uh, you know, expose of Exxon's sort of influence within the Democratic Party, uh, you know, that video of like an Exxon executive uh, bragging about how, you know, he's got some like over 10 members of the, it was like 10 or 12, um, like Democratic senators, uh, you know, just like in their pockets. Uh, and basically the idea being that, you know, because the Democratic majority um, is so slim and so tenuous, you only need, uh, you know, a two people like Kirsten Sinema uh, and Joe Manchin uh, to hold back uh, a progressive agenda, which, you know, maybe a much greater part of the uh, Democratic Party itself is also against. Um, and so I think that, you know, that's the first thing which sort of makes me doubtful. Um, and the second thing is, you know, as we saw during the American Rescue Plan, um, when there was like the $1,400 checks bill, you know, on Biden's desk at the beginning of his term, um, when Manchin was hesitant about voting for that, um, and also uh, cinema, basically right after they announced that they were hesitant to vote for it, uh, Kamala Harris went on um, West Virginia state TV and radio and in Arizona to basically like call out the fact to like the citizens that their representative wasn't voting for like $1,400 checks when, you know, all those provisions were incredibly popular uh, within, you know, the actual voters. Uh, in each of those states uh and you know that was effective in bringing them in line and the fact that they're not using the same tools uh that they've used to get with success sort of points me to the fact that maybe you know um the democrats are kind of just fluffing a lot you know about the rest of the agenda that they want to take and all this stuff and really don't intend to follow through because of their corporate donors right i mean joe biden has already like abandoned almost all uh, of the more radical parts of his agenda, you know, stuff like the public option. Nobody even talks about that anymore, even though, you know, during the primary, he would tout it as like his big thing that he would do instead of Medicare uh, for all. So honestly, it just makes me more pessimistic about the mainstream um, wing of like the Democratic Party and its ability to get on board with any sort of progressive change. For sure. Yeah. I mean, the sort of corruption, especially insidious, because uh, Build Back Better currently, as it stands right now, has $555 billion allocated to fight climate change. Mm -hmm. uh, and as you were saying, with the Exxon uh, leaks that happened earlier, Joe Manchin and other Democrats, um, I would say the most prominent example in my head right now would be in the House, uh, Henry Cuellar, 
who gets a lot of a big oil and gas money, uh, Texas representative. Uh, and so Joe Manchin, like he's also he's a coal baron, and he made his fortune in in coal. I mean, he's from West Virginia, so his money is in coal, and the sort of like corruption and special interests that take over the Democratic Party's agenda. Uh, sort of just prevents actual progress from happening, especially this sort of rotating target strategy that the Democratic Party has right now. Like, we mostly talk about Kristen Cinema and Joe Manchin because they're the most easiest to target uh, because they are, they can, like, use the fact that they come, Kristen Cinema comes from a swing state, Arizona, uh, Joe Manchin comes from West Virginia. A really red state and so i think it's a lot easier for them to be used as targets rather than any other democrat because uh, from my experience and from what i've observed the uh senators like chris coons from delaware uh someone who was appointed to fill biden's seat after he won the vice presidency with obama winning the presidency uh, he voted against the $15 minimum wage increase back when that was going through the Senate. And so there's a lot, definitely there's a lot more Democrats in the Senate that would oppose Build Back Better publicly if they could, like, spend the political capital on it, but they can't. And so the targets become Christian Cinema and Joe Manchin because they have this sort of record and this sort of behavior to them that they act as sort of moderate influence moderate quote-unquote influences on the party uh, because of the fact that they come from politically dangerous states yeah totally although like it's such a it's such a complicated thing because i you know i'm of the personal belief like as much as there are like red states and blue states there's like a very radical sort of um like political undercurrent among you know lower class people all across the country and i'm really convinced that you know when you look at polling data about how you had people in west virginia supporting basically all the portions of bbb you know by 80 70 percent margins right even though yeah again this is like a very you know this is the stereotype of like appalachia you know like the poor rural whites uh, that make up that Democratic Party base that the Repub that you know no the Republican Party base that like Democrats are so afraid of right um, like you know uh, what was her, what was her, that term the basket of deplorables basically remember back from like Hillary's um, campaign and I just think yeah. that we don't and have we, we the Democrats are incapable like infrastructurally because I think like we have to just think about how politicians like Bernie Sanders and like Kirsten Cinema are totally different. Right. When when Bernie Sanders is up for election, he doesn't like spend his time talking to donors over the phone um, and he doesn't have like a fundraising infrastructure oriented in that way. Right. He has like his very on the ground, people oriented, uh, you know, foot soldier type approach to politics in terms of like his volunteers and his campaigns. Um, and it's just like so much of the Democratic Party's like you know when you look at the actual representatives so m many of their own political infrastructures aren't like built for that sort of like harnessing popular world they're built for harnessing elite power um and then getting that money you know to furnish their campaign so that they can win and so i think it's like it's literally going to take like a strategic um overhaul of the democratic party 
for things to change, right? Because the idea that you're supposed to be representative to poor voters um, is currently not followed in much of the Democratic Party elite. And the fact is that, you know, given, you know, the 40% voter turnout and how voter turnout, um, you know, is affected by a person's, like, most aggressively, like, you know, their class background, the wealthier you are, the more likely you are to vote by a great extent. And I think a great reason for that is that there aren't a lot of politicians in the mainstream right now that are advocating for any policies that would substantially change the lives for a lot of people on the bottom. And so I think a lot of people are sort of justifiably tuned out uh, to a certain extent. And I think, you know, there needs to be like a new political strategy and new politicians of all types to, you know, look after this, to try to get this votership that, you know, has kind of abandoned the whole American project. Turning back to uh, sort of Bernie Sanders' approach to politics, I think what's really important about that is when you look at Biden and Bernie, their approach to the pushing for their agenda, Bernie is out there. I mean, he's been, yeah. when the American Rescue Plan was being considered by Congress, he was out there pushing for the $1,400 checks. He, he was putting political pressure on the rest of his party uh, to, to get that done. And even like now, he's pushing to get voting rights uh, passed through the Senate, pushing to, to get Build Back Better passed through the Senate. Meanwhile, Biden is like nowhere to be found. He, and it speaks to sort of the Democratic Party's unwillingness to actually meaningfully change anything because they don't go out and put political pressure uh, in the, on Kristen Cinema and Joe Manchin because they themselves don't actually want to pass these bills. If if Joe Biden actually wanted to pass these bills, he would use the bully pulpit of the presidency to, to put political pressure on Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema. And I think that's why Bernie's candidacy was so important to the state of politics, because not only it would Bernie be commander in chief, he'd be the activist in chief. He would go out and, and put political pressure on members of his own party um, if they refused to, to fall in line with the president's agenda, the leader of their party, the person who's in charge of, of the bureaucracy at the Democratic National Committee. I mean, it's like Senator Manchin opposes Build Back Better because he fearmongers about the deficit and he is fearmongering about the price of the bill and sort of going against key provisions of the bill, like the child tax credit, which is not only incredibly cruel to, to take away the child tax credits from working families in this country, but it's also not the politically advantageous move to do. I mean, when you look at polling, 68% of likely voters, according to Data for Progress, support Build Back Better. And each provision, if you poll it individually, poll around that same amount, if not higher. And so Senator Manchin is opposing this bill for solely corporate um, motivations. He isn't opposing this bill on ideological reasons, on, on fiscal responsibility, whatever that's supposed to mean. Uh, he's opposing this bill because of key things like the 55, $555 billion allocated to fight climate change and, and key provisions like the child tax credit. Yeah, I mean... It's it's when, when we t especially the child tax credit, right? Because you can see Joe Manchin, you know, in all sorts of TV appearances, and like 
I've seen them literally just like go after specifically the child tax credit. Um, and that always just like, I mean, something that I feel like gets wiped away a lot of the time when we just talk about politics in like any sense, you know, when names get thrown around is that they're like our people committing like biblical like levels of atrocity and like sin, like just by not voting for legislation that frankly is just a fraction of what we need to like steer ourselves away from like climate apocalypse and literally just like the massive amount of suffering that um, people, uh, you know, especially the people who are targeted by the child tax credit are often experienced and could be helped, you know, by this government assistance. Um, for example, in terms of the child tax credit, I heard a story which focused on um, the, uh, the uh, sort of undocumented immigrant population of New Bedford, Massachusetts, uh, where recently a large population of people uh, of, of people from a uh, native tribe in Guatemala, um, you know, had migrated because of persecution there to the United States, and you know, many of them had settled uh, there in New Bedford, Massachusetts, and were working uh, at a you know a cannery. Um, you know, there and much like, you know, I, I don't know if uh, you or a lot of other people have heard about, you know, what's been going on the on in the meatpacking industry. But, you know, this is the type of work that is the most dangerous, um, you know, the most monotonous, um, you know, often the most cut back on pay and stuff like that. Um, and very dangerous in terms of the spread of COVID. Um, and because undocumented immigrants, um, you know, were under the Trump administration when COVID started, uh, you know, all of those payments um, that expanded unemployment benefits and all that, that was specifically excluded from these undocumented immigrant communities. Um, and it wasn't until Joe Biden came into office that, you know, the rules on the child tax credit were changed that it could be gained by undocumented immigrants. And just in those months since that's happened, um, this case study of New Bedford talks about, you know, families that went from, you know, the mother having to eat cereal for, you know, day after day to make sure that they could afford to put food on their child's plate to, you know, being able to buy internet connection for the first time um, or, you know, putting food on the table regularly. Like we're talking about literally crushing like the hopes and dreams of people so that one guy can like make his corporate uh, money. And I think this is why we need people to get passionate about issues like this, because this is really a uh, dangerous, like frankly, evil uh, stuff that's going to end up affecting us within the next couple decades. Yeah, I mean, it's it's incredibly like the amount of cruelty that Senator Manchin is displaying. I mean, this man, he lives on a yacht when he's in D.C. Like he has a has a yacht. I forgot the no name way. of it. Oh my! Yeah, he lives no, on a yacht. There's, there's, oh. He lives on a yacht in the Potomac. I'm pretty sure it's where it's parked. And and like there what were protesters. What kind of fuck idiot do you have to be to like have a yacht and like you're you're like oh my god like your place for it where you hang out is like the Potomac River like I mean I don't know if like anybody here has ever been to Lake DC like nice place but like many there's a lot prettier places to like park your yacht like not gonna lie what a fucking schmuck holy crap sorry that just yeah there's <laughs> there were protesters uh, who like were in, like little like rowboats going and like were were. Uh, trying to convince Joe Manchin to to um, adhere to the party on Build Back Better. And he just, like, looked over, like, the edge of his yacht, and he's like, no, I'm not going to do any of that. It's, like, it's literally, like, this, like, 
coal baron looking down on the peasantry. Like, this, like, he's most likely, either he'll be, like, senile by the time the worst effects of climate change happen, or he'll be dead. Like, this, this is, like, our last chance to actually do anything meaningful to address climate change, to reverse the effects of climate change, before we head down the eventual road of destruction, because Democrats are going to lose the House in 2022. Like, it's just an inevitability, right? Like, they might not get swept because of gerrymandering not being so aggressive as everybody expected it to be. And the only, like, glimmer of hope there is that since the GOP took the position of don't believe the science, that enough of their supporters have died because of their insidious activity uh that margins might be yeah the margins might be closer than they should be um yeah i mean looking specifically at the provision of the bill i mean 555 billion to fight climate change 400 billion for universal pre-k 200 billion for child tax credits 200 billion for four weeks of paid leave 165 billion on healthcare spending 150 billion to expand affordable home care 150 billion for affordable housing all these things are are investments in the american people like in investments in our community i mean the united states is the only country in the world the only developed country in the world to not provide paid family leave to the people who need it and even four weeks is like crumbs compared to what the rest of the world gives families yeah i mean it's crazy because again Another thing that needs to be emphasized about all of these provisions, right? You know, hundreds of billions of dollars can sound generous, you know, on on their face. But we're talking about, you know, the fact that, again, this is all cut down from what should have been incredibly expanded. So in terms of addressing the goals that B2, I mean, BBB um, set out, um, originally when this was being talked about early in the Biden administration, AOC's... Um, you know, team came out with an estimate that you'd have to spend roughly ten trillion dollars um, to like properly address all of the goals which are laid out. You know, uh, in Build Back Better, um, and after that, you know, Biden comes out, I believe, with a six trillion dollar plan that gets bargained down to three point five, and then after that, it goes all the way down to one point seven five. Now, right? Um, if I'm remembering the numbers correctly, uh, and we're talking 1.75, yeah, yeah, and so we're talking like a greater than five-fold increase than an estimate of what have been would have been necessary, right? And this isn't even like the necessarily like climate dedicated like bill. Like Bernie Sanders was saying that you would need like a in terms of actually addressing the American burden for climate change, you're talking a 16 trillion dollar plan over 10 years, which. $550 billion then looks like a drop in the bucket when, again, we're literally talking about the fact that the summer after my sophomore year, right, you know, I'm in college right now. Um, I was at, you know, I was at a lecture um, for a summer camp I was at in Yale and they have like, you know, they had this like expert science guy. I don't like know any more than that, but he like, he was standing in front of us and he was talking about climate change and he was saying that, you know, big action needs to be taken in the next 10 years to actually change the momentum on this and stay within, you know, the 1.5 degrees Celsius threshold 
um, for you know temperature raise at which catastrophic change begins at, at which catastrophic change starts to begin. So we're not in any way addressing our own national obligation to cutting carbon emissions. On top of that, you know, um, the rest of the world is developing and industrializing, right? China is now uh, in pursuit of building its own consumer middle class, right? Talk about the fact how the United States, a country of 300 million, and Europe with their own consumer middle classes is now torching the globe uh, through carbon emissions. And now, you know, justifiably, every other country in the world uh, is now industrializing and moving towards a greater consumer um, middle class. Um, and unless we provide funding um, and expertise for those countries, you know, because they haven't been able to uh, gain cheap energy uh, and incredible wealth through colonial exploitation and cheap fossil fuels for hundreds of years, uh, you know, it's, it's totally ridiculous for us to just uh, demand at, you know, international climate conferences that every country across the world, you know, have the same uh, national obligation uh, in fighting climate change. And then us not even following through on those obligations, like the rich developed countries, like if we can't even do our own job fully, it's not going to set the momentum right for the rest of the world. And on top of that, I think we should be providing, um, you know, on the international scale, um, to really get this done within like the next years. And it's so clear, like how far away we are from that goal. Um, and it is so absurd that like, I think that, you know, we don't talk about that as much because it, it, we are heading towards due. Going back to uh, the price of Build Back Better, uh, to put it into perspective. Um, so like you were saying, the initial bill or the initial um, target that AOC proposed was 10 trillion which eventually shrunk down to six trillion and then that shrunk down to 3.5 trillion which progressive said was the compromise and then they went down even further to 1.75 trillion um this would over next 10 years right and so this would amount to 175 billion each year uh the pentagon's budget for 2022 is set around 750 billion dollars each year that is almost five times more than the annual price of BBB as it currently stands, and almost two times more than the initial compromise of $3.5 trillion. And this really makes me think about the interview that Cori Bush, uh, Congresswoman Cori Bush and Congressman Jamal Bowman gave to, to CNN about the bill, because what happens in the media is and i mean i don't have to tell you this right like what happens in media is that they always what they always do is point towards progressives it's like when are you going to compromise when are you going to compromise what are you willing to sacrifice uh, so you can get this so you can get this bill done and and what i really like about congressman congresswoman bush and congressman bowman is that they flip that question around i think that's what a lot of the progressives in congress have been doing like like aoc and, and cory bush they have begun to flip the question around. It's like, we have compromised already. 3.5 trillion was the compromise. Like Cori Bush was saying, the people of St. Louis didn't put her in Congress so that she could accept crumbs. They put her there so that she could fight for them uh, because St. Louis remains being impoverished. And it is because of the fact that we don't invest in these communities, the fact that we prioritize uh, the bottom line of corporations over the people who, who who live in this country, like you you look at the Pentagon's budget, I mean it's inflated to the max. Like the Pentagon has even said itself, like, we don't need all this money. Like we 
do not need these annual military budget increases every single year. Like, $750 billion annually. Like, can you imagine if we, if that was the annual price of BBB? Like, can you, like, even that could be enough to, to, to start to turn around things in this country. Not that it's enough enough, but it's a lot more than $175 billion. I mean, $175 billion is a drop in the bucket compared to, to what the United States government has in its coffers. We are the richest country in the world, the most powerful. Our capacity to do good in this world is like astronomical, but we don't do anything because of the fact that corporations have such a tight grip on our on our politicians and just i mean looking at sort of what what mansion does is that he fear mongers about the price when he in that same breath he turns around and votes for these inflated pentagon budgets and and that doesn't get questioned it's like when we spend when we pour trillions upon trillions of dollars into the pentagon and drain the nation's coffers of money to, to fund the creation of weapons of mass destruction, to fund uh, to fund arms sales to, to to foreign entities that fuel regional conflict and genocide. I mean, when you look at some of our alliances, you look at Israel, you look at Saudi Arabia, both of these countries have disgustingly huge amounts of human rights abuses. But we still ally with them because of strategic and military and corporate interests that, that take over. I mean, we, we sell sales to Saudi Arabia. That fuels the war in Yemen. U.S. manufactured bombs have killed children in Yemen. When you look at Israel, we, we just recently approved the, the Iron Dome sale to, to Israel, which further exacerbates a sort of milita military um what's the word for it so it does it it when like, when you're okay. like looking at this no i'm like thinking like so israel and palestine aren't like military balanced right like israel yeah. has has a lot more firepower to it and and i mean that just fuels further like superiority over over the palestinian people like it these these countries i mean we claim to stand up for human rights but then we drain our nation's coffers to support the regimes of governments that that curb these same values that we that we that we that we supposedly uh value I mean, you really just, I mean, first of all, but beyond the fact that, like, we don't even, a lot of money we spend on military, like, okay, yeah, the United States runs a global, like, mass empire. Like, if you haven't gotten that together yet, like, you're like, oh, no, we're great. Like, we spend democracy. Like, no, just get, like, get over yourself. Like, just watch the news for the, like, if you have been alive, like, for, for the past decade and a half and have watched the news, like, you should put together at this point that, like, we don't intervene in foreign countries for the purpose of spreading, you know, republicanism and democracy. Um, it's all right. Where's the resources? Like, where are the resources at? Like, that's always been like the question, and like the answer has just been: as soon as you find a country um, that has cheap labor and raw resources, you ensure the sanctity of a regime uh, that will keep it that way. 
And that's how the United States has operated in Latin America and frankly, all of the global South since the end of World War II. Um, but like, there also is like an incredible amount of waste. Like it's, it's like, you know, the balance sheets within the Pentagon have showed that, you know, there's contracts where, you know, we're paying a hundred dollars per bolt, um, you know, like nuts and bolts, like, you know, to, um, military contractors, thousands of dollars for toilets. Um, there was a time that, uh, the company that makes M1 Abrams' tanks lobbied the government so hard, uh, that they ended up setting like the budget for M1 Abrams tanks to be significantly higher than the military even requested. Um, it's so clear that the military is sort of this big arm of not only like getting cheap labor um, and raw resources to the United States, um, but also for just maintaining the wealth for a couple people who, you know, man, who, who own, um, you know, the military industrial complex companies, uh, places like Lockheed Martin and Boeing and stuff like that, that just want to see the profits increase. And I don't think anybody can sanely tell me that like the threats posed by Iran and North Korea, right? Like, okay, North Korea like could nuke us, but it doesn't take a $750 billion to like maintain some sense of protection from North Korea. Like meanwhile, we're trying to spend like a fifth of that to fight climate change, less than a fifth, right? It's only 550 billion of that that's dedicated to climate change. So we're talking a 15th of the amount we spend on defense to fight climate change. I think the threat literally posed to our lives and our national security is much, much more considerable from climate change. And it's ridiculous that we're spending 15 times more um, on not only on threats that um, like don't matter enough to spend money on it, but threats that literally we create. Right? The reason the North Korean regime is so hostile to us is because of historical American action by our empire. The reason Iran is so hostile to us is because of the actions by our empire. If we withdrew and did not maintain this imperial presence, there wouldn't be a rebellion against us. We are the empire, and these other countries are often the rebels. Sorry, if you like Star Wars, you should fucking get it. Okay, but have you considered if there are no foreign countries, there are no, there is no foreign policy? Yeah, yeah, I mean, why not? I mean, just make it all domestic. United States of Earth, folks. That's, that's the future. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I mean, U.S., the U.S. empire. So just annex every single country and we just, just make every foreign issue domestic. Um, but, I mean, seriously, like talking yeah, if about... If they could put, you know, Shay on every country, then that would have happened. Like, <laughs> hands down, but whatever. Um, hot take, Pinochet did a lot more uh, to advance socialism than Mao... Or Stalin did. Uh, he grew the economy by throwing people out of helicopters. It's crazy. I mean, so little tangent, but um, the the recently uh, president elect of Chile, he um, after winning, he said something to the to the effect of, "If Chile is the cradle bed um, for neoliberalism in Latin America." it can also be its deathbed, which I think is supremely based. Like, I haven't looked a lot into on, into Chile's new, like, president-elect. I don't know a lot of his policies, but just, like, that quote alone is just extremely based. And, like, I mean, like, we, we talked about this previously in DMs, like, Chile, um, like, under Pinochet, like, 
just a horrible <laughs> amount yeah. of human rights abuses. Like Salvador Allende, like just like existing, and the CIA was like no, and like in like introduced Pinochet to to Chile, and was like death to socialists. So that's always fun. So like, never mind. It's, this whole other tangent. Uh, but going back to sort of like Iran and our bloated military budget, I mean, it just really like tells you the values of this country realistically. Like there are the values that our politicians say that America stands for, and then there are the actual values. Like there are politicians chopping at the bit to go to war with Iran and, and Venezuela uh, because of the fact that there are huge oil deposits in those countries. Like Mike Pompeo, John Bolton, Nikki Haley are the most prominent examples in my head. Uh, they have always, like, for for Mike, for who was it? Uh, John Bolton. John Bolton. Uh, Iran is like is his white whale. Yeah. John Bolton, like, he just frauds at the mouth uh, at the idea of going to war with Iran. Like, that dude, like, thinks about, like, sending, sending destroyers to Iran and, like, just, like, carpet bombing them. And, and he just gets like bricked up. Like that dude is just fucking insane. He like, he, like wants us to invade I mean, Iran before he dies. Like he like no, he won't, he won't sure. die. Like it's like Henry Kissinger, you know? Like <laughs> this guy is still fucking alive. Like what do we have to do for this guy? Like, do we have to invade like Syria or something? Topple Assad for him to be like, I like my work here's done. And then he can just mm. like dip. Like, oh god. It's so gruesome how long these guys live. Yeah, I mean, like, if you look at how just disastrous Iraq was, and, like, uh, a country that's, like, a lot bigger than Iraq, and, and a country that already, like, defeated us in simulated war games, I, I just, I, like, I mean, personally, hot take, I don't think we should go to war with Iran, is that just, like, is just destructive on both of our ends. No, I, I think, that, I think that's just you. I think that's just you. I'm dedicated to the cause of um, overthrowing <laughs> the Ayatollah's regime. Um, you know, long live the bald eagle or whatever the fuck. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, no, it's ridiculous. Uh, the the call the U.S. colony of Iran. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just like our history of colonialism and our history of imperialism is just absolutely insane. I mean. Coming from a Latino, like I, I know a thing or two about Operation Condor, and, and that I mean that shit. Like it wasn't as concentrated in Mexico, but there were a couple of leftists, leftists that got CIA black sided in Mexico, and especially in that like in Southern America. I mean, we like invaded these countries, installed far right military leaders. And then turn around and are like, oh my god, conditions in Latin America are so horrible. What could have happened? Why is there a migration issue going on with Latin America? I'm like, geez, it's almost like you went into these countries, broke all of these countries, and then was like, okay, see you later. You can try and fix this issue. Like, yeah, Guatemala is like, like, Countries like Guatemala, Honduras, especially in Central America, you know, literally devastated because like one guy wanted to like keep making the same amount of money while like selling bananas for 10 cents less. 
that's yeah i mean yeah, yeah, yeah. like yeah i mean basically all of american empire can be sort of like abstracted into the fact of like how much like killing how much like sanctions death personal invasion like all this all these actions of empire like like how much are they justified basically by the profits and like like the costs that it'll bring down and like wherever that is deemed justified by you know the people in the cia or you know or the fbi or in the just in the national intelligence apparatus overall like that's just what happens like it is very scary just both in terms of foreign policy and in terms of economic policy especially monetary policy like how much our government is actually abstracted from democratic will you know the fact being that yeah the everyday foreign policy decisions and all of these everyday decisions are not being influenced almost in any way basically by our elected officials um it's mainly just like bureaucrats who have been there for like decades so that's why you know when people talk about like the deep state you know like the trumpian conception that is ridiculous there is no deep state um, like fighting against Trump and, you know, that are also pedophiles according to the QAnon theory. But like there is, there is like a heritage of like bureaucrats who just stay in areas of the American government for way longer than any dem democratically elected administration and then go on to like sort of do the same thing for a very long time. Um, yeah, uh, I'm going to say another hot take. I think that Henry Kissinger should get CIA black sided. Um, just a little hot take there. Um, he should be like hung in front of the Capitol. Like <laughs> I'm not joking. Like that's like the kind of thing that would be like a des somewhat deserving moral reckoning for like what's hap what's happened in the past couple decades. Yeah, uh, this whole like deep state thing. It's it's so funny to me. Like this whole like especially with like I mean we're we're a day out from a year after January 6th and the insurrection that happened on the Capitol, like, this whole idea that there's this, like, democratic cabal of Satan-worshipping pedophiles that drink the blood of babies, of aborted babies, like, the, it, it's so funny to me because the, it's, like, the same sort of, like, logic that they use to, to justify their claims about the election being stolen. It's, like, this party that only has control of the House, doesn't have the control of the Senate, doesn't have control of the White House, somehow rigged the election in favor of Joe Biden, but also failed to rig the election of of House seats and Senate seats. Like, and this, failed this the campaign in Wisconsin. Like, it's just the most incompetent people. How could anybody think that, like, the Democrats could be, like, running the whole American show? Like, my God, like, they can't, they can't, like, win. Like, Democrats are just incapable of winning. Sorry, folks. Like, that's literally just the reality of, like, the past 20 years. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's... So, uh, <laughs> we're getting a lot of tangents. Um, but there, there's this program called Dave's Redistricting, uh, which basically kind of, like, gives you 2020 precincts and, and lets you draw the maps for congressional districts. And what's really funny to me is that in the states that have Democratic control over redistricting, I go onto 538's website to see how they're drawing, how the uh, the legislature is drawing the map. Um, and what's really funny to me is that I draw the lines so much better than the democratically controlled legislature does. Like I benefit the Democrats with with how with how I draw the districts better than than they do. Like they are so like feckless and idiotic. They like they lost Virginia. 
a, a D plus ten state, they lost Virginia. Like they nominated Terry McAuliffe, which was like the first nail in the coffin, and then they decided to double down uh, on this like anti like teacher union position. I like I vaguely remember, and then they didn't meaningfully address any like actual voter issue they were just like oh orange man bad like they literally did the meme of orange man bad and and while todd yunkin what was fear-mongering about crt in schools like terry mccullough did not have an actual response to that like you could it's easy like you could just be like republicans are trying to take away mlk from school like they're trying to take away I have a dream. They're trying to take away the March on Washington. They're trying to take away these ideals of equality for all. They're trying to erase that from American history so that white people don't feel bad that that brown and black people live at a at a disadvantaged um, position in the United States. Yeah, I mean, okay, this for me is the perfect thing of why the Democrat, the Democratic Party is just like very bad because it's not connected to material reality or material politics. And this is sort of like the premier example, which is the fact that the Democratic Party is like a self-defeating institution time and time again, right? You know, the parliamentarian. Like think about how much stuff has just been stopped by the parliamentarian. I keep hearing about like new legislative uh, things that they block from like making it into reconciliation. And you just hear like all these Democrats like Biden and they're like, oh, you know, well, you know, whatever the parliamentarian says, like this will have to listen. And it's like, no, you don't. You can explicitly remove them, like every Republican administration has done. And the fact that they're not even like an elected official, like what fear is you from like what fear do you have from removing them? And stuff like the parliamentarian, like, you know, there's that very famous Michelle Obama line, you know, when they go low, we go high. Right. Like that's, I guess, like a nice sentiment, but as a political strategy, it's ridiculous. Right. If you think about it, if Republicans are gerrymandering like crazy and you're a Democrat and if you're actually convinced that like you getting like into political office is like a necessity for saving people's lives and giving people a better life, then you probably would actually gerrymander, too, because you understand it as like a moral imperative to compete with the party that is bringing us towards annihilation. But literally all of these places where the Democratic Party could, you know, use their own power um, in ways that the Republican Party has used in the past, they're just like, no, I'm not going to do it. And like, you can't like it's, it's, it's so crazy to say that because, you know, that is an aesthetic position, right? The material position is you should do whatever you can to get your policies across. But you are an aesthetic party if instead you're just trying to, like, you know, appeal to, you know, wishy-washy liberals by saying, you know, we respect the rules and the procedure and everything. And that's the Democratic Party as a whole, I think. That's the really scary thing. It's not, I think, actually motivated towards making real change. Yeah, I mean, this whole, like, incessant need to adhere to, to rules and procedure and gentlemen's agreements, like, at, to some degree, like, our democracy, our government has only survived so long because of gentlemen's agreements, but... Today's GOP is not the GOP of like the 1980s, right? Like the GOP of the 1980s was comparably more sane than the GOP of today. Like they were not like actively com like trafficking in stochastic terrorism, right? Like you can't bring a stick to a gunfight. Like the like Democrats are are like 
handling handling this issue of our democracy falling apart with with velvet gloves. Meanwhile, the 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 Republican Party it like is like just bashing through the walls with a wrecking ball, while the Democratic Party is just like trying to like like sticky like gorilla glue of the pieces back together. Like that you can't like move forward as a party like this. Like there are political science professors already being like the, the United States is turning towards an autocratic authoritarian uh like regime being empowered, right? And like there it could come as as soon as twenty thirty, like not to like be doomer about it, but that's like scary, honestly. Cause it's like if we go down that road, there's a whole lot like it's not gonna be any more like, oh, but like the filibuster, oh, but the parliamentarian, you gotta respect the opinion of someone who worked in ICE and, and they're ruling on immigration provisions. Like there's obviously not a uh, a conflict of interest there. You gotta respect all these all these institutions because they like these institutions are a lot more valuable, apparently, than than actual people's lives. And we just like I mean, Bill Back Better and the rest of President Biden's agenda is being stalled by the Senate because of the fact that they just can't get it together and, and remove the filibuster because of some like fear mongering about how they remove the nuclear option and how Mitch McConnell was able to to stack the courts uh, against the Democrats. But I mean, this this whole like. And and this whole issue about sticking to procedure and rules isn't even like all of it. Because if they were to take away the filibuster, then they would have no excuse to 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 not pass meaningful legislation for any of exactly issue. exactly. I totally agree. Like cause, cause exa- that's exactly I think the the point that like needs to be made, which is that the Democratic Party is not incentivized in any way to represent popular will. I really think I think maybe if there were honestly just like even younger people at the top, maybe things would be changed. But I, the Democratic Party, like at its very top, right? Um, like you just always have to remember that like these parties don't work off any real popular conception of what the base wants. It's often just you know what the dozens of people who are arming the very, you know, top echelons of it, decide is like the best idea. And a lot of these people are stuck within the very, I mean, not old, but like ever, ever since Clinton, the Democratic Party strategy has been, you know, you know, the sort of fiscally conservative, socially liberal thing where you appeal to like the middle class suburban, you know, educated people, right? And this just, that strategy is not going to be able to defeat climate change frankly, um, because you're not drawing upon the more radical elements of the population, which you could bring on board. And I think, yeah, like, I think the Democratic Party doesn't really want to win sometimes straight up or doesn't really want to do the things that it is able to do um, because that would risk some sort of actual reckoning with the character of the party. That would risk, you know, pissing off corporate donors and making them leave. And then you having to switch to some sort of you know, actual popular based off the people, a strategy to running for office. And if you don't have an infrastructure set up for that, and if honestly the current setup is making you pretty rich, what's your incentive to change? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's just all of this is fun stuff. 
Um, our country is dying. And nothing Before our eyes, happening. right now, like as we speak, just for everybody out there who's listening, remember. So turning things back around to build back better, um, sort of talking about the future uh, and where that's going. Uh, so uh, like we talked about, Senator Joe Manchin announced his opposition to build back better. Um, and so my point of view on build back better, like going forward is uh, either they'll lose the house before they can actually get anything like done or like, because like through stall talks and whatever, because Joe Manchin is a fucking cruel person um, or it'll be even slimmer than it is now, which I'm not looking forward to seeing if that is the case because 1.75 already is just like it's it's crumbs, as as Corey Bush would say. Like 1.75 is just not enough. Yeah, I mean, based off that, like what's get what's gotten me down, especially recently, is like okay, historically you look back on it. If you want to get if you wanted to make sure you do well in your reelection as a Democrat, you want to have gotten some of your policy promises done. Right. Because the reason people vote for elections for Democrats is because they're like upset by like the insane greed, uh, you know, and governmental decay that has happened under the Republican administration and is voting for the Democrat and the policies that they promise to do to address that decay. And Joe Biden did have, you know, comparatively a very progressive agenda. Um, and I say that now because I like now months of his administration, we can tell that he had no intention to do the vast majority of it, to be honest. Right. Um, and so, God, I'm forgetting where I was going with this point. But, oh, yes, my point basically being that if Biden isn't able to actually do his policy promises so the people who voted for him, especially who might have changed or who, you know, were sort of on the sidelines might in some way feel betrayed. Um, and then beyond that, right, another reason people voted for Joe Biden versus Trump was the fact that he did better on COVID. What have we seen literally over, like, the past couple of days is, like, COVID is at its worst point ever now. Um, in terms of the numbers and its like impact on society, it really is getting crazy out of hand. Like in this very moment, um, you know, I'm talking to kids who are coming back from college because their classes are going fully online. Like we are entering sort of like the very, um, you know, the sort of lockdownish environment of what we used to be. Um, and this is with like the vaccine and all that, and what Joe Biden said would take to get rid of COVID. So people are also going to be pissed off at Biden that he didn't. Uh, you know, totally fulfill his promises on getting COVID under control. If, you know, stuff like that new, uh, uh, that, because there was a new, because besides Omicron, there's even another newer variant that just came out in France um, that has like a ton of mutations, which means it'll be even less susceptible to the vaccine. Like, yeah, this is sort of the issue we're going to. Biden's not going to have any of his policy promises done. He's not, he, he could not even have maybe, you know, like the, the I did better on COVID advantage over the Republican Party. And I really think, you know, we're going to be like Trump's probably going to win the nomination again if he runs. Like there, there's nobody who would be able to beat him, I think, among the Republican Party base. Uh, so, yeah, I think from like a historical perspective, uh, it doesn't look good, not only for 2024, obviously, but more immediately in the midterms if we can't get this COVID thing. Uh, under control it'll look very bad for the democrats you lose that congressional majority and then you can't get anything done at all um never mind like the nothing that has been done already and then yeah trump for four years means that it'll be too late to do anything in terms of climate change so 100 percent. yeah i mean i i don't know so uh, looking looking ahead to midterms um 
I have had conversations with people um, saying that like if I because if if Trump does um, run for president again, he's like virtually guaranteed to win the Republican uh, nomination. Yeah. He'd probably have to do something like crazy wild. Like I honestly wouldn't even know what it is because, like, like he said, he could murder somebody on Fifth Avenue and they still vote for him. And that's one hundred percent true. Like, uh, I just, I just, I don't know. Like, what could I mean? Like, on top of like turning around, sort of what's happening with with COVID right now. Um, I honestly think that Biden would have to like pass like huge initiatives. I honestly, think something like. Um, Legalization of marijuana on a federal level, coupled with something pretty big, would would be enough to to turn polling around. Uh, I f- I don't know if I'm putting too much weight behind legalization of marijuana. I um, think we would do like a lot of work. I think honestly that would be very big. I'm not gonna cap. That would get a lot of red people, just because that is one of those things where it's like it's really not like definitionally blue. Like there's so many like young to middle aged conservatives who are like on board with cannabis legalization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it's kind of like weird to me that some Republicans are still on this like anti marijuana like thing because I'm just like, didn't we leave this back like during like the crime bill or like back in like even like 2012? Like I like I'm pretty sure we progressed past the point of fear mongering over a drug you physically cannot overdose on. Like I see, I don't remember who it was, but it was one of the one of the new uh, Congress. Um, Congress people on the Republican side. I think it was, I'm not sure if it was Lauren Boebert or Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, both just extremely intelligent people. Um, they, one of them was like fear mongering about marijuana. I'm like, what, what is this? 2012? Like, weren't like when I saw, when I saw the thing, it was 2021. I was like, this is 2021. Like, I, like, I, are we still doing this whole like crime bill shit? Like, I don't understand. Like, are Republicans okay? Like they have like nothing meaningful to to actually give to voters. That's why they rely on this whole culture issue, like culture war issue shit, like with, with like with uh, critical race theory and, and all this, like and treasure their bathrooms and and all this other stuff. That's why um, W. Bush flamed up the whole LGBT. Uh, gay acceptance issue back in 2004 because he was extremely unpopular and needed something to fire up his voters. Uh, and so they have like nothing materially useful to their voters in terms of like economic policy, and they know that they can't like defend their economic positions because their economic positions are go work until you die. You don't deserve a $15 minimum wage, which is the compromise at this point, in my opinion. Um, you you don't deserve paid family leave. You don't deserve child tax credit. You don't deserve medical insurance. If you get sick and you can't pay for it, guess you'll just have to die. Like, the, just the fact that Democrats just can't, like, take advantage of the fact that they don't meaningfully offer anything other than culture war bullshit, it just, like, speaks the fecklessness and just they're in a because they're so afraid of of being like washed out by another reagan because they're like after reagan and sort of like the washing out of the democratic party they're so afraid of that happening again that they're so afraid of using utilizing their power in the way that republicans do they they just don't 
get anything done and whether that's because of corporate interests whether that's because of their own like fecklessness and an idiocy whether that's because they're just terrified to utilize their power because they'll think the american people would would go against them it's just, it just speaks to the democratic party it's just utter incapability of getting anything done and and changing anything in this country for the better and I think the big thing we have to emphasize is like that the Democratic Party isn't even like a party in like a very conventional sense in the like the way that it operates, which is that like if you have a functional party, it will enforce discipline among its members and votership. Like this is the, we're talking about like basics of like European parliamentary democracy, which is that all the Labour Party votes the same way, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the Democratic Party isn't really like a party party. It's just like a bunch of people who like run with this like very mainline position and often are less and this is a very important thing less tied to the democratic party itself and you know the establishment the party being where there is at least some level of democratic input and more with their own donors and their own specific financial interests and political class that you know is relevant within their district and so i think that's what the issue is people like for many democrat politicians their chief loyalty isn't to their party it's it's to their donors and i think that's really obvious like when there's like think about the fact that Dem like mansion is somebody who even gets to call himself a democrat right like i know that like kicking him out of the party would make him a republican but it's a message the idea that there is some sort of democratic party platform and that if you stray too far from it you are not part of the party right like that seems insane that it's just the functional, normal way in which the Democratic Party operates. And, you know, at, at no point is it ever criticized in any way. Yeah. Other two great examples of that would be when AOC said that in a European democracy, parliamentarian system, AOC and Biden would not be in the same party. And, and that true. is 100% <laughs> true. And, and the same goes for, for Henry Coyar. Like when, when Jessica Cisneros announced that, that she was going to, to campaign against him and she's running against him this year and i'm feeling pretty great about her chances this year um but pelosi instead of siding with a democrat who is, is pro-choice and would actually represent the the d plus 20 district that henry cuellar is in instead of supporting her she protected the incumbent and and someone who's an, who's anti-choice, someone who voted against um, the the bill to codify Roe v. Wade into law uh, that was that was passed by the House um, earlier in, in um, twenty earlier or late twenty twenty one. It'd be like around September, I believe. Um, but when they attempted to codify Roe v. Wade, Henry Cuellar was the only Democrat, I believe, to to, to vote against that. And, and Pelosi, I believe, also is on record saying that there is still room in the Democratic Party's tent for, for anti-choice Democrats. And, and hot take, I don't think Democrats who are anti-choice belong in the Democratic Party's tent. Like, yeah, we that should be the most basic thing. Like, come on. Right? Like, no, I totally agree with you. That is insane that I didn't even know that she thought, like, anti-choice Democrats should be a thing. That is absurd. But that totally, like, shows you the thing. It's not any, like, policy thing. It's just, like, yay, more Democrats. If your thought is, yay, more Democrats, no matter who it is, then, again, it's aesthetic. It's not material. Because if the other Democrats you have are Democrats in policy, 
that materially there's no that they aren't democrats materially but if they're aesthetically democrats and you're accepting of that on its front then it shows what your real priority is it shows in your own words and actions how detached your own party is and how detached you know pelosi is as a politician from their actual uh districts and the people who live in them yeah and the same goes for um marie newman who who ousted dan lipinski uh, in her primary, Dan Lipinski, also another anti-choice Democrat, uh, Emily's list had to be shamed into supporting Marie Newman over over Dan Lipinski. Uh, and keep in mind, Emily's list supposedly a pack to support women candidates and candidates who are pro-choice. And and Emily's list had to be shamed into supporting a progressive women wo- woman who is in favor of codifying Roe v. Wade over a conservative Democrat who, who is against, uh, against reproductive rights. Like this, this whole like thing. And like, I looked up the actual like quote, it was, it was saying that uh, Nancy Pelosi back before the Democrats won the house uh, said, this is the democratic party. This is not a rubber stamp party saying that democratic Democrats who, who do not believe in the right to an abortion uh, should not be kicked out of the party, and, and uh, the the stance of the candidate should not be used as a deciding factor as to whether or not to endorse a candidate. I mean, this just like speaks to the fact that like, these, yeah, I, like the most like basic issue, and and the, the party can't agree on that. Like it's it's just insane. Like it it'd be like. It, it's, like, okay, sorry, sorry, it's explicitly there like you can't judge basically somebody based off differences in their platform yeah yeah i mean like uh, that's literally politics it's, it's it's literally that sentence is denying the notion of politics on its face it's ridiculous that any that mm-hmm. anybody could like any organization could put that out and still like function and i think you know what this really shows like especially like the emily's Licks example a you know a pro i mean like a pro yeah pro-choice organization supporting an anti like an anti-choice candidate like the like what i sort of want to say is like all the time and like our very popular conception of our government and the way the media presents it to us it is politicians competing for our votes in a democracy and in reality it's more so politicians can be competing among other politicians to get their favor which then decides how an election goes because yeah i mean it is probably logistically a lot more easy to work within the apparatus of a party than to like mobilize a massive group of people like if you have the money and ways to get into those halls of influence and to me that's when something becomes definitionally an oligarchy and i think that's why bernie is exactly right because literally the decisions on who your elected official is and what their policies aren't going to support aren't being made on the ground it's being made by party bosses who put people into election slots, you know, based off whether, you know, they'll know ahead of time or not, you know, they'll get elected there. Like, oh, if that's a solidly new district, we'll just put like that guy there, right? Like it's that sort of like structure. That's not democratic in any sense. It's just people on the very top putting politicians where they want. Yeah, I mean, like, it's sort of like reminiscent to, I, I recently posted on Instagram um, this New York Post article uh, that was with the headline saying Hillary Clinton warns Democrats against far left turn before 2022 midterms. And I offered up the alternative headline 
of expert in losing easy races tells Democrats how to lose. And it's the same sort of like tactic that like Claire McCaskill uh, does as well. Like she, af- like after um, after the the pretty bad House returns um, in twenty twenty, Claire McCaskill went on MSNBC and was saying that the Democratic Party shouldn't be so um, shouldn't be so stubborn uh, to in their like unwillingness to to cling on to to social progressivism. Uh, yeah, stop doing what people want. It's making us lose, guys. Ugh, these people. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I, it's just, I, it just sounds a lot like sort of like warning against a leftward turn. Sounds a lot like, oh, we should moderate on, on social progressivism, and like because you just won't like appeal to to conservative voters who aren't going to vote for you anyways, even if you do moderate on these social issues, like. Abandoning the base of your party is always a good idea to do. Like I just, I mean, Hillary Clinton and Claire McCaskill just utterly incapable of winning elections. Like they, they experts in losing. I mean, Claire McCaskill, she could have run on raising the minimum wage, on expanding Medicare coverage, of 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 uh, legalizing marijuana, or even decriminalizing it and and um, offering uh, medical cards. Um, medic for like legalizing it for medical use, uh, but she didn't, and all of those provisions, uh, on on the ballot, on the state ballot, they passed in Missouri the same year as she lost her her election, and and Josh Hawley um ousted her from the Senate. I mean, just utter incapability of 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 noticing where things are going. I mean, if she if she campaigned on raising the minimum wage on uh, on any of the issues I described, she probably could have won, but she didn't because she didn't campaign on them. It's it's another like Wisconsin moment. I mean, Hillary Clinton was was so arrogant about her about her chances of winning twenty sixteen that she was like, oh, Wisconsin, the Midwest, eh, whatever. I'll just show these Midwesterners I don't give a fuck about them because it's all about me. Yeah, I mean, uh, it it hurts so much because it is really just an exercise in ego it's not it's not like a real attempt at any sort of material politics it's just yeah like hillary clinton i feel like in a way she sort of represents like the stratification of the party herself like the fact that she was the presidential candidate in 2016 like how how sort of as a party um i I don't know what word the word was on the tip of my tongue but how um, how sort of stagnant how sort of like idiotically secure of you secure in your own position are you when you're like oh um you know maybe instead of like picking the guy who brings a new vision and could you know because i think this is like the biggest thing right like democrats are always like you know we got to chase that like centrist block you know you know those people who like always feel kind of on the edge about people like trump you know like oh you know that seems like too much mr trump for me it's like these like like in america today how many like straight up like fucking God, what was the governor of Ohio? That guy's name, like the most milk toast Republican guy ever. What was his name? I'm trying to remember. Uh, Ohio. The, the the guy from Ohio. He ran for president in um 2016. Oh, uh, fuck! What is his name? Uh, I'm forgetting this. Yeah, Dude. no. I mean, he spoke at the DNC. 
That's what yeah, I no, exactly, because that, that, that's why I'm bringing him up, because he's like the example of, oh, let's try to bring on like these moderate Republicans into the Democratic Party. But basically, John, like, Kasich. Yeah, John, John Kasich. Kasich, yes, John Kasich, right? He's sort of this embodiment of like, oh, you know, the sensible conservative that we want to bring onto our side, right, by moderating our tone a little bit. It's like, I'm sorry, but that's like eight guys. Seriously, like most of the, a lot of the Republican Party at this point has been not only radicalized, but is already far right. It was already far right. Like you're not going to appeal to this very tiny centrist block effectively, especially when you consider the fact that, again, we're talking about huge subsets of the American population on the lower end of the economic spectrum, 20, 30, 40% of the population that isn't engaging in the democratic process because they see no incentive, because there's no buddy proposing them a platform that they think will radically change their lives, or, you know, because of the fact that Democrats have kept failing them, they simply don't trust them anymore. And the only way you could escape that sort of thing is by electing a guy like Bernie, who on his face would make the party look like it's actually serious about its promises, so that it could bring those, you know, that large percentage of lower class people uh, along the side, instead of you know trying to go after a very small percentage of people who are just some you know fairly wealthy suburbanites that are comfortable enough at this point to still be in the middle of the political spectrum. Because I really think there is a very small percentage of people at this point who are comfortable enough in today's political reality to literally just sit in the center and be like, eh, you know what I mean? Yeah, uh, yeah. Regarding that, I mean, hot take. I think that centrism is a gateway drug uh to conservatism i mean like yeah. if you like look at if you look at the people who are like oh i'm just not really that into politics or or i'm a centrist uh it's like most of their political positions align with the republican party uh and, and they just like they still have the, like the gall to, to claim centrism i was just like give me a fucking break dude like it like a hot even a hotter take i am the centrist me like I, I am the center of American politics. That that like being being a socialist is centrism. That that's that's where that's where the party goes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no. I, I totally agree. In like a just political world, like Bernie would be like mm -hmm. the moderate. Like unironically. That's my belief. But yeah. beyond that, like um The ratchet you know, effect. The, the, yes, the ratchet effect. Uh you know, to to all to all, to all the listeners at home. Um, that's basically like this little, this little infographic, you like look it up. And so the idea is, you know, the Republican party, every time it comes into office, you know, moves things to the right in terms of policy. And then as you can imagine, because that involves privatization, um, cutting of social welfare, um, usually lowering of taxes on people at the very top and expanding deficits, it's literally just increasing immiseration of the population. That's what a Republican administration means. And then a democratic party you know, harnesses its energy off of, you know, we're going to end that administration, we're going to put in these policies to stop that, and then they don't, which gets people angry at them and just provides an impetus for the next right-wing reaction, um, which turns the American political system further towards, you know, the dystopia we're heading towards. Um, and then, you know, again, maybe a Democrat would be elected, but how do we know that they wouldn't just be feckless again? Uh, it, it is, that's sort of the ratchet system. And it, if you don't, you know, look at how the Democratic Party has operated since the Clinton era. It's really been that sort of thing. Pete Buttigieg's 2024 inauguration speech is going to go something like, the shape of our democracy and the brilliant stars up above. And 
and and the the the, the brilliant glory of our nation and it's just, it's just this is what these democrats offer it's just empty platitudes and, and flowery language and that's it um yeah, and with, like, other... I feel like it's not even because with Buttigieg, it's not even like fiery language. Like, okay, if somebody like Buttigieg is elected, unless he has like I don't know some because you know he used to love Bernie. You know, he like sent the letter to Bernie when he was like a kid. So, I'm, oh, you know, I love the all the policies you're going after. But probably like lots of people, you know, that was when he was young, and then he found money mm-hmm. and he changed his mind. But beyond that, that it, has, money. yeah, that McKinsey money, exactly. So unless he goes back. Uh, in that direction like think about the way like that guy talks and like is in speeches which is that he tries to call like he literally tries to copy obama but like as a white guy straight up like as a white gay guy. Like, he's like the white gay obama sorry like in the way he talks um <laughs> yeah like, that's sort of like calm moderate like mediating presence like sorry that's not what the american political order needs like right now it needs like un- like yeah like an old harried man um, who looks like he like needs to get somewhere, like because and, and who's often angry and has like a very strong Brooklyn accent. Like that's the guy we need. Like the guy that like you know gets your fucking nerves up instead of like calming them on national TV. I, I mean, not for me, but like for the average American person, you know, like that's what's needed in order to change our political course. It would be really sad, but is what I'm saying. If um like if if, if it was. Buttigieg getting elected in 2024 or 2028, then it's too late for us. Yeah. Um, any final thoughts on Build Back Better? Um, obviously, um, Bill itself is a good thing. You know, anybody who would disagree with that is ridiculous, especially considering how small it is. Like, to be against what's left at this point is to literally be like, yeah, I just want, like, kids to starve. Sorry. Uh, I don't like paying taxes, I guess. Go fuck yourself. But like beyond that, um, it is, I think, one of the most telling examples of how, you know, a thing that can be originally a, 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 like a, a realization of like popular impetus, which is that I think the original $6 billion proposition by Joe Biden was, you know, I think he would have originally even wanted it for it to be smaller. But that large price tag, even at the beginning, was a, as a result of the very big popular um, you know, impetus of the justice Democrat wing of the party and all of the influence that it had been sort of allowed to have within the making the party platform for Joe Biden. Um, but it just shows how Congress, through its structures, both congressional structures and the structure of the parties themselves, like the Democratic Party, can just stop any progressive change in its back, in its, you know, in its tracks by basically slowly watering it down you know, over weeks as it sits in Congress and people stop paying attention um, until, you know, people aren't looking at the fact that, you know, the bill that they once thought would get passed is $6 billion, um, is not going to get passed at all. And I think it's that sort of like progressive lowering of expectations um, is how they, you know, how a lot of politicians get away with, um, you know, excuse my friends, fucking us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, but... Have you considered, Jason, that letting children starve is just their opinion? I mean, everybody has a right to their opinion, you know? Like, you, I mean, if someone's opinion is letting children starve, I mean, it's their opinion. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, you know, I, you know anybody who's taken, obviously, intro econ should know that, you know, if the supply line is there and the demand line is there, where the lines meet, you know, that tells you how many kids starve. 
And you can't do anything about it because that's just the lines. You can't change where the lines are. That's how econ works. Sorry. So. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that, that, I mean, that like that sounds um, really bad, but that is how our economy works, basically. Fun times. Uh, my final thoughts, fuck Joe Manchin. Uh, Build Back Better should be yeah. passed, obviously. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think Joe Manchin deserves to burn in the fiery pits of hell if I believed in that shit um, for for all of the uh, shit that he's done and the destruction that he will leave in his wake. Uh, but other than that, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's just your generic like leftist position of Bill Back Better should be passed, fuck Joe Manchin, fuck the corporate Democrats, um, AOC 2032, I don't know. Anyways. Uh, Assuming you're still a Democratic Republic at that time, of course, like that's the... um. That's the big if. Of course. That's, yeah, that's, you, it's just like, by 2032, we're assuming that, I don't even think 2030, is 2030? I think 2032 is an election year. Uh, uh, I'm not sure. But, yeah, it is. Uh, okay, cool. Yeah, but that's, uh, that's a big if. Okay, moving on. Um, the wonderfully smart and brilliant Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, proposed on Twitter the sort of national divorce of blue states and red states. Uh, and so all the blue states in this country would separate and form their own country, uh, which I'm going to label as the United States of America. Because let's face it, it's Civil War 2.0. Um, and then the red states would break off and form their own country uh, called the Confederacy. Oh, wait, that was already a thing. Um, anyways, so I'm just going to set the parameters. Uh, Jason, feel free to disagree uh, with my parameters, but I'm going to say that the the countries are going to be filled by the states that were won by a party three out of the four recent elections that happened. Uh, And so the blue country would consist of California, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, Colorado, New Mexico, Minnesota, Illinois, New York, Virginia, Delaware, Maryland, New Jersey, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Vermont, Maine, New Hampshire, Hawaii, Wisconsin, and Michigan, and Pennsylvania. The red country would constitute of Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, Utah, North and South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, Missouri, Arkansas, Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee, Kentucky, West Virginia, South Carolina, Alaska, Arizona, Indiana, Georgia, North Carolina, and then I would also include Iowa, Ohio, and Florida into the red country as well, mostly just based on where those states are going um, currently. Uh, but Jason, if you disagree with any placements. No, I t- I, that totally makes sense to me. I just want to ask, because maybe I misheard, is New Mexico in the blue country? New Mexico is in the blue country, yes. Gotcha. Well, that poses a very interesting thing then, because, I mean, obviously the blue country was always not going to be contiguous because it would be the coasts. But also, um, like, New Mexico, but at least, you know, the West Coast, you know, you can get by sea to the East Coast. But New Mexico would be entirely um, locked away in terms of land and, like, sea access from the rest of the um, United States, which would be a very interesting scenario, obviously, especially because you know, my baseline assumption is that this sort of thing could never happen in any sort of peaceful way. I think that yeah. as delusional as people like MTG are, 
I think that part of the honest part of their losing their loot sorry that the honest part of their delusion is that I think they propose stuff like that knowing that if anything like that would happen there would be some sort of violent conflict but that's you know the sort of thing that they want to see happen to like reify their crazy political opinions um like because you know if you had like a state like New Mexico I think it could be like instantly overtaken by the red state so to say if it was in that sort of way geographically separated from the rest of uh, the blue country. But that is my only um, discrepancy with basically the current format. Mm -hmm. All I got to do is invade Arizona. I mean, like... Also true. It could be the opposite, which is that... I'm, that's a hard thing, though, because in terms of countries that would be um, hotbeds for... Um, armed, incredible right-wing militant activity. Um, like we're talking about the state of Arizona. Like this isn't an, an this is an entire state of like older, very angry and well-armed white people. Um, so it would be it would be very difficult to subdue Arizona within the blue. My um, worst nightmare. Oh no. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the capture of Phoenix. It would be um, it would be a hard it would be a hard fought battle. Uh, the the battle of tacoma arizona <laughs> uh, gotta, our the first base of operations will be the shiny uh, mcdonald's shiny mcdonald's and then the yeah. soldiers from the blue republic did fortnite owl dances on the dead bodies of <laughs> soldiers from the arizona republic fun times i wonder yeah. do you think that texas would immediately secede from the rest of the red country or do you think they'd stick together like like just like texas itself like just has a unique like history uh, i mean it's called like the lone star state for a reason right like the like remember the alamo and all this shit like do you think that they'll, they'll like break away and like eventually form their own republic or do you think they'll stay together because in the handmaid's tale um instead of texas joining alaska and hawaii as the only two states left of, of the original United States, Texas breaks mm -hmm. away and forms its forms its own um, country. I have an alternate hypothesis. I don't think Texas would become its own country. It, with, I could think it could become its own country, I guess, uh, in a sense, but not with its current borders. I think that a lot of the border areas and sort of like the chaos of some sort of split up um, would be seized by Mexico. Uh, for good, based, I mean, based, yeah, literally, like, yeah. Sorry, like, <laughs> that's um, like new the the new like campaign promise from Andres Lopez Manuel Obrador is is invade Texas and reclaim the land, the ancestral yeah. homelands of Texas. Reclaim San Antonio. The <laughs> Alamo. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah. Like honestly, yeah. I mean, if you look at the if you look at the reports, if you look at the uh, receipts, guys, it was originally Mexican clay. So that would be very justified um, in terms of, but I, I do think just like demographically, I don't think Texas as a state would be able to stay like integral just because like, yeah, areas in like, like Northern Texas and like Eastern Texas, like, yeah, that's like certainly generally whiter, a lot more conservative, but closer to the border, obviously a lot more racial diversity. And that's your areas where there's like a lot more, you know, those are your bluish purplish areas for the party. So I think, yeah, and I don't think, you know, that would become part of the blue country in any sense. I think that would um, be integrated into Mexico. Or, and I think you could say there would be potential for states within the very north of the country to join Canada, honestly, in some sort of national breakup. 
Uh, but you know, that's enough fantasizing on that note for me, I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, like, I honestly, we probably couldn't like amicably divorce, uh, so to speak, um, as a country, because uh, it's. I mean, obviously, these these conservatives are like chomp, like having wet dreams about shooting up commies in California. Um, but like, I mean, it's just like, taking into consideration the fact that they're like deep red pockets and in california like california is like the reddest blue state right like just because of population alone there are a lot more conservatives in california than there are like anywhere else uh with maybe the exception of texas um but i mean just like deep red pockets in blue states deep blue pockets and red states i mean like the atlanta metro area in georgia um would be like an example and and, and then there then there are like the states that are trending towards the democrats and then there're the states that are like trending towards republicans i mean cuz you have arizona texas and georgia um who are that are trending towards the democrats and then you have like florida iowa ohio which already belong in the country but they're trending more to the right at least for the time being once the boomers die off in florida we'll see what happens um, Ohio is also trending toward, or I already said Ohio. Um, I I believe I've saw I've seen data that the Midwest is also trending towards Republicans, um, which I mean, yeah, that actually is sort of makes kind sense. Of, like the state of Wisconsin, like moving red. Like, I mean, I don't know if that's a reality. I don't know if that's like demographic reality or just like people's opinions towards politicians in that state within the last ten years. But like. You could definitely say the Midwest is going more to the right as they're getting older, literally. Yeah, Rust Belt turning red, the Sun Belt turning blue. Fun times in American yeah, politics. It's, it's it's really just like where are like more people coming, and in like more yeah. rural Western states, it's like okay, why would we move there? Like if you're an immigrant, a lot of the time because that's not where the access is the easiest or where the economic activity is. And yeah, it is a lot more. Uh, in the Sun Belt, where you know people find it, yeah. and I think that's like the the messiest thing about this, which is like okay, um, you know, like for example, a state like Georgia could be turning more blue because of the expansion of minority populations, but that's not a thing that happens like geographically evenly across the state. It's not like the state overall is becoming more blue; it's certain pockets that are just you know becoming more relevant within the overall population pool of the state. And I think you know what made i think probably the first civil war a lot easier for it to happen but also a lot less messy in the way that i guess it would work itself out um is that it was like very very sectional right like the issue of slavery it was yeah you know there were some people in the south who wanted to stay in the union and maybe even end slavery and there were people in the north who wanted to you know let the confederacy go or like leave slavery but it was really really correlated to where you were in terms of the north and the south of the country but now it's less about where you are specifically in the country and whether you're urban and rural right and that's you know there's urban and rural sections in every country i mean in every state of the country and so then if you were to have some sort of yeah if there was like a red country you know a lot of the urban areas of that would be an open revolt and if you had a blue country, then maybe you would have rise, you know, groups of people rising up in the countryside. Um, that's the thing, and you know, and that's sort of you can't really have any sort of sensible breakup. 
because you can't line up people's ideology according to state borders. Yeah, it's just this whole like national divorce issue. Like, not only is it just like unfeasible, really, because of the whole like psych like regional conflicts that are happening during the Civil War, but also, I mean, you if you look at states like Arizona, Texas, Georgia. I mean, these pockets of blue. They they'll get like repressed in in the red country. Yeah, um, yeah. I think that would be a result, honestly. Like, like just massive. Yeah. Like, I mean, just dictatorship control. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if there was like some sort of reassertion of like Jim Crow. Maybe not to like the full extent, but like, yeah, like the, the this supposed red country. Like when you look at the fact that like it's mainly former countries of the Confederacy, which like currently still allow for prisoners to be worked in jails for no money. In most states, it's pennies on the dollars, which is already very cruel. But in a number of southern states, you can be literally forced to work for no money at all. Actual slavery, right? Um, on top of that. Uh, you know, basically up until the early 2000s, every attempt at redistricting that was ever done in like a former Confederate state would have had to been approved by like a federal commission to ensure that it wasn't done with like the, you know, the sort of uh, like a desire to, you know, wipe out the political influence of black people. Because gerrymandering was a tool uh, traditionally used by like, you know, the, the Jim Crow Democratic South to maintain their power. Uh, and literally, as soon as that sort of like requirement for checking with the federal commission was rolled back in the early 2000s, because basically the government was like, okay, it's been 150 years since the Civil War. You know, I'm sure you guys aren't virulently racist anymore. You guys can do this fairly on your own. And yeah, within like a few years, now we have crises, especially in North Carolina, where there is gerrymandering happen on an extremely explicit racial basis in a way that's been um, stated by judges and federal courts. Um, to that effect, like you would, we would really be talking about a country that would be moved substantially, probably backwards in terms of social progressiveness, uh, because of the people who are in power in those states and the fact that a lot of um, the maintenance of uh, certain amounts of social progressiveness in the United States has been the sort of guarantee of the federal government. Yeah. Uh, going off on a little tangent about uh, what you were alluding to, the Voting Rights Act, instead of the Supreme Court's undue influence on gutting our democracy. Um, so the Roberts Court has an unprecedented um, effect on our democracy. They have essentially, the Roberts Court has basically been responsible for the worst sort of um, avenues for the Republicans to, to abuse. Uh, to curtail voting rights. Uh, and so in Shelby County... Yes, Citizens Boulder, United, right? Is that Citizens United, United as well under Roberts? Like, that's that's huge too. Uh, yeah, Roberts, yeah. Uh, so Shelby County v. Holder struck down Section 4 of the VRA and Section 5. Uh, so Section 4 and Section 5 are vital parts of the VRA, with Section 4 creating a formula that the federal government can use to identify jurisdictions with problematic histories of racial discrimination. And Section 5 created a process called preclearance, which gives the Attorney General of the United States or a three-judge court in Washington, D.C., the power to approve any changes to voting laws in the jurisdictions identified by Section 4. And if the law failed to gain approval, the new law could not be enforced. And so after the Supreme Court ruled that the Section 4 of the VRA was unconstitutional, that in turn um, 
struck down Section 5 as well, because without this formula, you couldn't uh, use preclearance. And that essentially let Republican legislatures um, gerrymander on, on a racial basis. And the, like what you were alluding to, the majority opinion in Shelby County v. Holder was that it's been a couple of years since the Civil War and since Reconstruction. A couple. Uh, race, racism isn't a problem anymore. Um, nobody's being racially discriminated against in terms of how the districts are being drawn anymore. Um, and, and which was just like crazy coming from the Roberts court. Um, but I don't know, I don't remember if it was either uh, Sonia Sotomayor or, or RBG who wrote the, the dissenting opinion. And they were arguing that just because nobody has been discriminated against in terms of how the districts were being drawn, that doesn't mean that uh, the court should strike down uh, crucial parts of the Voting Rights Act um, because it could lead to said discrimination um, being done, right? And so it's just this crazy, like, like the the Roberts Court has just has such like a, a destructive influence on our democracy. I mean, there is Shelby County v. Holder, Abbott v. Perez, Rucho v. Common Cause. Brnovich, the Democratic National Committee, and Citizens United, the most infamous of all of, all of them. Uh, the Brnovich v. Democratic National Committee was the most recent one, which basically um, let Arizona sort of like skirt the rules a little bit about mail-in voting and, and precincts. And so um, it kind of took away, um, it like disproportionately impacted black and brown communities um, in Arizona. And then uh, Abbott v. Perez, and Rucho v. Common Cause were um, were cases that uh, and Abbott v. Perez set the bar high for when state lawmakers could be considered as maliciously drawing districts uh, with the intent of racial discrimination. Uh, and Rucho v. Common Cause was was another sort of like VRA related thing. Uh, and so all these cases have really just like struck a heart through through our American democracy. Uh, which is always fun, you know, the Supreme Court um, that was appointed by the majority of Republican presidents, uh, making it easier for Republican presidents to get elected. You know, I think that's just really fun. Yeah, uh, sort of as a small tangent, I guess, on that, but still very much on the topic of the Supreme Court, like literally based off the sort of legislative agenda you can, that you've talked about just now, like, and for much of American history, it's quite apparent that the Supreme Court has operated as a reactionary institution, right? Um, especially in times where there's like actual potential for uh, progressive change, right? So we're talking in terms of like new the New Deal era, a lot of the radical economic reforms that FDR proposed were just completely struck down. Um, and, you know, welfare state proposition that yeah, just totally murdered by the very conservative 1920s era Supreme Court. Uh, that was operating at the time. And I think what that sort of shows is that the Supreme Court kind of operates as like basically, the, the, how do I say it? Like kind of, the, it's like the chemtrails of like the political order of 30 years ago. Like that's what the Supreme Court is at any time because the people who are sort of manning it usually are on average, you know, people that have been put there within the last, you know, 20 years ago or 30 years ago or something like that. So they represent literally an older political order. 
So not only are they not directly elected, but the way in which they're chosen and the fact that they have life terms mean that they literally become um, undemocratic, extremely elected literal representatives of our old political orders sitting within our Supreme Court. And the fact is that, you know, I really don't think for that reason that we should have a Supreme Court. There are many countries that don't have um, a Supreme Court in the same sense that we do, which is that, you know, every country has a court of last resort, which is that if you want to get a dispute arbitrated, there's a final court who will give you a final say on the matter. But not every Supreme Court, you know, or equivalent in the world that is a court of last resort has the power of judicial review, which is that the court decision can then be used to change the law and constitution of that country. And I think that's a ridiculous amount of power to give to literally a cabal of, you know, nine unelected people who represent, yeah, a political priorities from years ago. Because even people like RGB, who, you know, get a lot of praise um, from the liberal and like, you know, even, you know, feminists and progressive interests of the Democratic Party. It's like, if you look at her voting record, besides on like some social issues, she was incredibly reactionary, especially on, um, you know, economic issues. Like, people should look more into her decision on like the BlackRock um, or, yeah, like the, no, the, um, God, I'm forgetting what the name of it was specifically, but the like, you know, the oil pipeline that was happening through like native land, um, standing you know, rock. Midwest. Yeah. Standing rock. Um, but like her a position on like that and like stuff of that nature was really quite reactionary. Um, and that sort of shows that, you know, she was from that economically conservative, but socially progressive Clinton politics of the 1990s. And I think that sort of reflects why our Supreme court, very outdated, very undemocratic institution, generally has done a lot of bad, um, should just not have the power of judicial review. It's not good for anyone. All because Marbury decided to sue for his commission. Yeah, wow. those, 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 midnight, those midnight offices, man, really fucked up our entire democracy just because some, mm-hmm. some guy wanted to appoint somebody really late. I can't believe John Adams just fucked our democracy just because he lost to Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, wow. fuck you, John Adams. And the Alien and Sedition <laughs> Acts? Not cool. If we did that shit today, that'd be crazy. But yeah, that yeah. is like, are we are we going to be back in Alien and Sedition Act like territory within like three years? Yeah, probably. But like, whatever. Yeah, I honestly, like, I would honestly say that Clarence Thomas would be in favor of Alien and Sedition Act uh, because I, I looked at a, a case um that was unanimously, well, almost unanimously, it was a eight to one decision with Clarence Thomas voting against um, about the, the high schooler that was um, taken off the, the cheerleading team because of her profanity uh, on Snapchat. Um, the, it, it was like they, the Supreme Court was saying that a, a school could not uh, punish her for, for supposedly violating the honor code or whatever because uh, it happened off school grounds um and and other things and that like the if if they did side with the school it could lead to bad precedent uh and clarence thomas obviously a a warrior for for free speech um said that she could not use that profanity without um, expecting any consequences um which is funny because i mean clarence thomas is always like this propagated like conservative figure on the right and he just like consistently votes uh, in opposition to like free speech cases, like 
Was it Gorsuch or Scalia who voted in favor of, of flag burners? Uh, I am not sure. It, may have, it might have been Scalia. I can't remember because that might have been like a surprise like, thing from him. Because like you, when you think about like Scalia, right? Like ultra conservative, this dude was still yeah. like, yeah, you have a right to burn the flag. Yes, I yeah, exactly. He was, he was pro, he was pro, he was pro um, protecting burning. So yeah, he was kind of like yeah. the principal one, I guess, if you want to say. Yeah, but I mean, Clarence Thomas sat on a court case regarding Monsanto, and he used to be a Monsanto lawyer. Like this dude has obviously no like recognition of con of conflict <laughs> of interest or like principles whatsoever. Uh, but any final thoughts on the divorce scenario? Like who would win a fight, blue or red? Um, anybody who proposes anything like a divorce scenario, so like somebody like MTG, and like I'm not like of that lib instinct of like, oh, you know, we have to spend all our effort like, you know, making people like MTG look ridiculous because they are making our democracy look stupid. Our democracy is already fucking broken, okay? Like, she, like she's not the problem; she's a symptom of the problem, right? But, but. Anytime she goes on TV and says she's for a national divorce scenario, any responsible journalist who covers her says this woman is advocating for civil war. Because anybody who takes that idea and talks about it on the media as if it's a thing that's sensible and can be done peacefully is a willful liar. And I think she's a willful liar for doing that. But anybody else who runs with that crazy idea and even talks about it in a way that doesn't like explicitly make clear to the person that's listening, this would cause mass death. Like, that's not just, like, that's not responsible journalism or responsible politicking, you know, depending on what position that person is in. Causing mass deaths is a Republican pastime. Yeah, that's um, true, actually. There's so many people <laughs> at this point that you can't get called out for it. It would be hypocritical. Yeah, I mean, uh, I would, like, agree. Uh, I mean, it's just this, this whole, because I did a project on the 14th Amendment, uh, in 10th grade U.S. history class, and I got extra points because I decided to cover the rest of the uh, of the 14th Amendment, not just the, uh, uh, the section that was, like, once you're born in the United States, you're a citizen and you get full rights. Um, I, I covered other sections. I believe it was Section 2 or Section 3 in the 14th Amendment. It lays a constitutional basis to expel members of Congress for engaging in, in treasonous or insurrection, uh, insurrectionist activities, uh, which Lauren Boebert has engaged in, Marjorie Taylor Greene has engaged in, Madison Cawthorn has engaged in, uh, Paul Gosar has engaged in, uh, Mo Brooks has engaged in. I mean, all these members of Congress, Josh Hawley, like all these people should be expelled from Congress, right? Like they are traitors to the United States. They actively supported they they gave aid to 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 the insurrectionists and the terrorists at the Capitol on January sixth last year. They they should be expelled from Congress, right? Like Cory Cory Bush uh, introduced a, a bill to expel them from Congress. Uh, nothing really has happened with that, uh, and nothing is going to happen to that. But if if our democracy was fair in in a perfect world, if we actually stuck. To, to the Constitution, like, so many conservatives like to claim that they're, like, constitutionalists or originalists or whatever, like, they would expel, they would get expelled from Congress because they advocated for treasonous activity against the United States. 
and, and then they go around and, and claim that they're the Patriots as if they didn't like surmount this 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 movement to try to murder the vice president of the United States and to prevent the certification of an election. Yeah, it's too bad the only historical precedence we have for this is like Andrew Johnson letting a bunch of Confederate generals like serve in the Senate again, like after the Civil War was over. Like, it is really unfortunate that like something hasn't been done about these people who like exercise incredible political influence, like in our government and are there. But like, it truly reflects the fact that I think our country is, or not our country, I guess, but the American political order is a lot more reactionary to its core than it frankly seems on the outside. And so that's why it'll always be a lot easier for people who seem this crazy to get into power because in, in terms of the stated, you know, goals of our democracy, you know, freedom, justice, all that crap, you know, she seems completely opposed to that on its front. But when you look like, when you look at, how our country actually operates, what values are sort of, you know, budget and actions as a nation, you know, tell as a whole. Um, and MTG is a lot closer to that. She, you know, when people are like, she, she, you know, she's not us, you know, she's not what we present. She's not America. Like, yeah, she's not the American people, but she, she is like the CIA fucking crazy guys who like want to subvert like most of the third world into like a, resource farm for the united states like it is those like facets of empire that she represents and i think that's a dangerous thing because we can't just say that's not us because that kind of is us like in terms of who's making decisions yeah mm-hmm. um okay any i guess i already asked that um so last meme uh, I think Marjorie Taylor Greene isn't all that crazy. I think she has some pretty good points about those Jewish space lasers. Um, right. you know. Yes, that's, <laughs> that's the one thing. It's like it's hard for me because on most of the things, I'm like in vehement disagreeal uh, with Ron. But you know, I've I've gone to the forest. I've seen the laser come out. <laughs> I've you know I've seen the torches um, come out, and you know half of the California burnt down within the path of ours. I can confirm that it's not because of climate change. Um, it is because of the Jewish space laser. As Californians, we both personally saw the <laughs> Jewish space lasers compared yeah. to our forests. Yeah, I mean, you know, to all my friends back on the East Coast, I know it sounds insane, but we saw it. Crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, anyways, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene is insane. Uh, Lauren Bober is insane. <laughs> Madison Cawthorn claims to be an alpha, yet he got divorced. And got divorced by his wife and got honeypotted by her as well. Um, Somebody should send us some some thoughts and prayers. I think I think we need them right now. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, on that note, this concludes the first episode of For the People by the People. Uh, quick review: We talked about Build Back Better, where that's going. Uh, kind of took the Doomer pill with that one, but we still yeah. got some hopium in reserves. So there's mm. that. Uh, final conclusions: Fuck Joe Manchin. Uh, we also talked about. The national divorce scenario recently proposed by Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, she did not get banned for inciting the civil war on Twitter. She got banned for spreading misinformation about COVID. Um, but no, she's crazy. This idea is crazy. Uh, but, you know, culture war shit. That's the only thing Republicans 
uh, offer to their constituents. Uh, Mr. Potato! Right, uh, Sorry, I just said <laughs> Not always is like the that's oh, the yeah, biggest Mr. Thing potato head. Right. No, it's, it's mixed potato head. <laughs> yeah. A gender potato uh, head. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, we, of, we should end it. Cut it off. <laughs> lots of thanks to Jason uh, for being my first guest. Thank you for having me. This was such an awesome discussion to have and a lot of fun. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like the uh, there are lots of memes, you know, our our American political system. Absolutely. I'll see you all later. Well, (laughs) see you guys. Bye.